Good morning. I'll be reading from 1 Samuel 8. You're welcome to turn there or just listen as I read through this text. It is a text that is difficult. There's hard things because we see the depravity of mankind here. And I would just caution you not to fall into the trap of looking down on the Israelites who once again make a bad choice. This text is a mirror. And as painful as it is sometimes to look into a mirror, that's what we're doing this morning. I'll alert you though, watch how God warns the people what will come with this king whom they want. And there's a word that appears several times in verses 10 through 18 that shows us what will happen when the people get what they want. First Samuel chapter 8. Then Samuel became old. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel took all the, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and give, and you shall be his slaves." In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. 
Flacco is dead. The Eurasian eagle owl that had prowled New York City for about a year after its release from captivity in a nearby zoo seems to have run into one of the many tall buildings in New York City and was found dead at the foot of the building. A vandal in February of 2023 somehow ruined the net that was keeping Flacco in his containment, and he escaped. And the question at first was, would this owl survive? It had been raised in captivity, had not had to fend for itself. But sure enough, it was seen prowling around the city. Evidence was clear that it knew how to catch rats. And many were following to see what would happen. It would have been 14 years old next month. In captivity, or I should say in just out in the wild, those owls typically live to about 20. In captivity, could live up to 40 years. And so some, of course, are trying to point out that yes, the vandal released this owl and it enjoyed a year of freedom, but at what cost? New York City is not a friendly place for birds. It's estimated that well over 200,000 die every year by running into buildings in New York City. So freedom, but at what cost? I think that our hearts can resonate with the Israelites if we take the time to connect what's going on in 1 Samuel 8. They want a different king. And they are rejecting the king of kings, God himself, as they call for a new king. They are chafing under the current status. They want something different, somebody different. And as I already mentioned, I believe this text should serve as a mirror for us this morning. Yes, they made the wrong choice. Yes, they paid dearly for that choice. But if that's all that we say this morning, then we've missed the opportunity to hear the warning from this text. Freedom, at what cost? Is your heart chafing under the rule of God this morning? Are you trying to push off against the, push away from the one true God in some way in life to create your own little space where you can set up your own king? You can set up your own idol. Israel's call for a king reveals that it has rejected God. We've seen that already. Been pointed out, we've read it, as God gives the indictment, as he reveals the heart of this people, as he tells Samuel, his servant, they have rejected me from being king over them. They've not rejected you, Samuel. It's a bigger deal than that. They've rejected their one, the only one in true God. And God knows what's going on. It's not just that they want somebody visibly in front of them. He knows that there's a rejection here towards him. And yet he still allows it. So let's 
let's see how this develops for Israel. And as it develops, let's keep in mind this is a mirror. This reveals the human condition, our tendency to push God away and to put something else in God's place. At the beginning of this chapter, there's a failed succession. Samuel tries something very unusual. He tries to set his sons up as judges. This is atypical. And worse, it doesn't go well. Uh, Beersheba was probably not a main part of the nation. It very well could have been just this out-of-the-way spot, but word gets around, and it becomes evident that these two sons of Samuel are abusing their position. But I think there's bigger context than that. And if we just dive into Samuel 8 and the failure of these two sons, the failed succession plan, we miss a little bit more of what's going on. We miss just how bad this is of what Israel is about to do. See, back in 1 Samuel 4, the elders had made a choice to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle, practicing rabbit foot theology, we could call it. If we bring the Ark, then we'll have victory. That doesn't happen. It's a bad choice on the part of the elders of the nation of Israel. And so chapters 5 and 6 detail how God defends his own name and really brings judgment to the Philistines. In chapter 7, Israel has a change of heart. And they ask Samuel to go to God on their behalf. And God comes to the rescue, and he, as the mighty warrior, defends them and defeats the Philistines. Now, there was time after this, really, you could say, the career of Samuel. And so there is time between 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Samuel 8. But this is the recent history of the nation. There would still be people alive that could recall the time when God delivered the nation from the Philistines. Even further back, Moses taught in Deuteronomy 130, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. This was God's role, to be the warrior who goes before his people to defeat their enemies. But the people no longer want that. And so what happens here at the beginning of 1 Samuel 8 is I think we see the excuse. Yes, it's true, the new judges are not trustworthy. That's an established thing. These men do not follow in the steps of their father, Samuel. We really don't learn anything of Samuel's parenting. Was he a failure like Eli had been a failure? We we don't have any word of that. We just know that these men will not be like Samuel in that capacity. Well, times of heat reveal. This is a time of something going wrong. We could call it a time of heat, of pressure. And the leadership of the nation calls for action. And so we see a revealing choice. As they make a decision for how to respond to these two failed judges, the heart of the nation is revealed. 
Again, they make a a poor choice back in chapter 4, the elders. Now here we see another poor decision. As they say in verse 4, look, you, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Okay, that's that's why we're in the position we are. But then they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And maybe if you're looking at that verse alone, you'd say, well, we see it right away. Their desire is to be like other nations. That's where they go wrong. But yeah, interestingly, we have over in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 15, these words. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, And you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So we need to be careful. Could their desire to have a king like other nations be wrong? That's possible. But this is also permissible to seek a king like what the other nations have. Because that is allowed for them back in Deuteronomy 17. So there is some support for their call to have a king like the other nations. But as Samuel is disturbed by this in verse 6, he does the right thing and he brings that to God. There's such value in watching the examples of those in the past. Here's a man who is bothered by what he hears and he goes to God with that burden. And the Lord answers Samuel very clearly, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. Well, now you have it. Samuel knows that this is not just them trying to practice Deuteronomy 17, there's a, there's a problem here. They've rejected their God. In reality, Israel uses the failure to call for a king. I don't think it's just that they say, oh, now we've, we've been following the law, we see it's time to make this transition. There's not evidence here of them trying to honor God. And we know directly from God himself that their hearts are wrong. So, yes, there's a problem. Judges are perverting justice. That's a deep problem. That's disturbing to the citizens of any nation. But that does not give them the right or the authority to reject God. And so they use the failure to call for a king and reject God. One sin does not justify another sin. And I want to keep this within the context of the passage here. You have Israel as being under the authority of God and they see this wrong thing developing where judges are using their positions. For themselves. That does not justify then totally throwing off God's authority. They're merely using it. And as we look in the mirror of Scripture this morning, it's 
telling to see that this can be our propensity as well. Do you have an authority over you, even now, which you are chafing under, and you're looking for any sign where that person or that entity has gone wrong so that you can just throw off the whole authority and do what you want? This can happen at the child level as you see your parents in all their glory and as you see their parents in the day-to-day run of life. Are you looking for any opportunity to see, I don't need to honor my father. I don't need to obey my mother. Because, and then you look at the failure. This can happen for us as citizens under this government. And think of all the tiers of government where we look for some kind of injustice that's being done. We don't have to look very far. We look for some inconsistency, and then we believe we can take the step of doing what we want because our government has failed. And yet it's the government that God has permitted. It's the government that the New Testament very clearly says we are to submit beneath. See, this is the human tendency. Find a weakness, find a failure, and then throw off that authority. And that's what Israel is doing here. One man has said, our proposals and solutions then can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. Maybe you've made an argument in your mind that makes sense and gives you permission to act as you want. And it all fits together. But at the end of the day, while we can't see your heart, God can. And he's perfectly able to follow your logic. He's able to see all those connections. But he's also able to see your heart in that. As nobody else can. So what evil are you using to justify your evil? Beware. That is the tendency of humanity. Well, Samuel obeys the call of God. God says in verse 9, Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, in a remarkable way, God says to Samuel, Yes, obey them, and We'll talk about that in a bit yet, but, but also warn them. It's the mercy of God. So often, if you look for it, you will see the pattern that before God brings judgment, there is mercy. And one of the ways that he shows mercy is through warning of what will come. And that's what he calls Samuel to do Next. Did you catch the word that repeats several times in verses 10 through 18? It's take. This king who will come will take and take and take and take and take. I don't think, as you look in that paragraph, I don't think that you see automatically a perversion of justice. But what you see is the possibility for it. This king will have the type of authority which he can easily abuse. Now, why does that matter in this context? Remember the original reason why Israel is calling for a king, at least in in this chapter. 
We want a king because the judges, which Samuel has put in place, are perverting justice. And so we want a king. What is God revealing through this warning from Samuel? You want a king. You're going to set up a king. What could this king easily bring upon the nation? Injustice. So often the solutions that we come up with really don't get us very far from the original problem. These will be the ways of the kings who will reign over you. And if we look at this list and try to look at it objectively, it makes sense. The king needs an army in order to defend the nation. He needs some type of administration. He needs to be able to provide for those administrators and meet their needs so that they can meet the needs of the nation. These things make sense, but through all of this language, you have the repeated emphasis that such a king will keep taking from you. The replacement king will not be better for the nation. At least it will not be better, the replacement king will not be better for the nation than God himself. This is not a step up. This is not a step of improvement. And God will allow the nation to suffer for its choice. How is God different than these kings? I think in part I'm relying on the history of the law to answer this. In the covenant that God makes with Israel, what does God promise Israel if they obey? Abundant blessings. Uh, often related to land and often related to, I believe, just the prosperity of a people in a rich, overflowing land. Physical blessings, safety, protection from their warrior king, God. Now, in the covenant also, God promises that if there's disobedience, there will be terrible curses that come upon the people. So you have that, yes, but if the people are willing to obey God's law, there is abundant blessing that God will bring to them. God is a giving God, and he promises to give to the people if they keep their end of the covenant. And what the words of warning here bring out is to have this king in place, just the very nature of having a king will be costly for the people. They will have to keep giving to this king. As we reject God, as these people seek to put a replacement in God's stead, as they reject him and as they replace him, they will come to realize, or at least they will come to experience that their replacements will keep on taking. They will keep on demanding. Maybe our hearts cry out, I have a choice. Okay, you say there is one true God, but I'm an individual. I have my own mind, my own heart, my own will. You want to have the choice 
of whom you set up as your king. And I would encourage you as you consider where will you find your fulfillment? Where, where will you worship? That's the human nature. Ask the questions. Look past the promises that are made to you. The idea of a king is very promising to these elders, very promising to the people. Look past the promises. See the enslavement that can come. See the end of what you would put in God's place. What did you substitute something in God's stead? See where that substitute brings you. Not just what it promises, but what it actually brings to you in life. And that's what Samuel is trying to do to these people. They don't want to listen. That's clear as we get to verse 19. They refuse to obey Samuel's voice. And again, so often as we look in the mirror of this text, so often that is our heart. We decide we want something, and it doesn't matter what warnings come into our ears. We've made up our mind. We know what our path is. Whatever warnings you say, that's not going to happen to me. I'll be different. It'll be okay. No, look past the promises. Look past the, the goodies that you get at the beginning and see how will this idol, this replacement of God, how will it enslave me? How will it shackle me? What would be the end of this false worship? I know that's not how you say it in your heart. But that's the reality. As you bow down to anything other than God, you are offering up your hands to enslavement. You are choosing a path which will not end well. And the Israelites sadly demonstrate this time and time again for us. In fact, see what terminology Samuel uses in verse 17. You shall be his slaves. They were slaves before. Israel, you're going right back to the path of slavery. Do you not see it? What's the clear call from Samuel? Turn from this. This is foolishness. Brother, sister, friend, where have you allowed your heart to be enslaved? Where have you gone off to the right or to the left to false promises? Things that look so good to you that would replace God and become your focus, your joy, your reason for existence, your end, your goal. And as you've gone down that path, you've gone in to slavery, the slavery of the heart. Things that promise and yet take and take and take and take from you. Some of you know this to be true because it's very possible you've either lived it recently or you're living it right now. Don't fool yourself. You might think that you have control over that, but you're going to go back very soon and bow down to it and serve it and give to it once again, only to see that the promises are empty. The satisfaction is fleeting. And if you're honest, the end of that path is death. 
Be warned as you look into the mirror of this text. There are all kinds of ways that we could try to illustrate this. And frankly, it's hard to choose. Maybe one of the more visible examples would be to look at a person who is addicted to some form of drugs. Who perhaps for a time knows the ecstasy of what that drug will bring, but then physically knows over time the entrapment that that drug also brings, the the death that looms over the near horizon and comes closer and closer and closer. You can look at all kinds of examples of how our own joys are empty, the promises are fleeting, and the end is death. And so let us look on Israel perhaps even with thankfulness to see it as an example before us to know, hey, we need to watch how this happens, what the end is. They even see in verse 18, in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And you say, what is that? That is God allowing them to face the consequences of their choice. It's as if he could say to the false gods, this is your moment. Those who have been bowing down to you are in need. This is the hour, false gods, step in. And once again, they fail. You say, well, is God vindictive? Is he just getting back in verse 18? He's allowing the people to choose their path here. And he's allowing them to face the end of that path. Remember, this hasn't happened yet. This is a mercy of God. You go this way, this is what's going to happen. And you will feel the enslavement and the hopelessness that that brings. That's a mercy of God. It's a mercy of God that you can hear this morning, turn from that path. It does not end well. It ends in death. Ends in disappointment, ends in slavery. Growing up, there was a really a wonderful man who served at uh, our church in Pennsylvania for many years. And uh, he was the one who was leading the church, preaching, um, even as God was working in my heart to desire the pastoral ministry. And in his pulpit, was a statement that I didn't really understand at first. It was very simple. Sir, we would see Jesus. It was mounted on the pulpit where nobody could see it except for anybody who was behind the pulpit. Sir, we would see Jesus. See, I think this applies not only to the individual level, but here is a a group of people in 1 Samuel 8. A group of people that is deciding to reject God. And we might think on the church level, well, that, that seems even further out. We can perhaps see this more likely on the individual level. We know at times we've seen perhaps the ugliness of our hearts. On the church level, though, there are all kinds of other things that we can decide to go to, and that becomes our goal. And they might be initially things that are good and fitting within the proper context, but can quickly 
become distorted and become an object that is something besides God. Do we want more people to come to know Christ? Yes, absolutely. Spread the gospel news. Tell others there is hope. Whatever you're feeling right now, there is hope. Let me tell you about Jesus. Take the time to go back and for many, more and more these days, you need to give the history. There's so little, perhaps, that's given to them. Take the time, bring them through the story of Scripture and what God has done. But I hope we also know numbers can become an idol, just like so many other things. It's wonderful to support those who have gone abroad to tell others in other contexts, to to other people groups about Christ. But cannot missions also become our pride in the sense that that overrules things, becomes out of place? See, there are easy ways that we as a church can lose our focus. Sir, we would see Jesus. We would know the triune God. We would rejoice in the God who has come into human history, even as he oversees human history, and has from among us brought salvation. This is not just an individual challenge. I think this is a group challenge to the people of God today. We must labor to make sure that our focus, our goal is upon Christ, is upon our triune God. We are here because of the one true God. That is what draws us here. We are here because he has spoken. We have his word, which is our authority. And we submit to it and we proclaim it. And our life is through it as we know Christ through this word. That's the core. It has to be the core. Christ knowing our God through our Savior. Samuel's delivered the warning. I've already pointed to what Israel does. You see their stubborn refusal. Then at the end of the chapter, the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. See, if, if there's a question that you have about what somebody is revealing, you hear them say something, you think, well, that, that could be okay. Or it could be them revealing their heart about something that's rather not okay. We don't have the opportunity like Samuel to hear directly the voice of God. Yes, this person's motive is wrong. And often it's just over the course of time and further conversations and investment that the heart is more fully revealed. You see the heart of the people here at the end of chapter 8 as they say, no, but there shall be a king over us. Scripture is very clear about this kind of attitude. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The steps back to God are very brief. They heard this from Samuel, the servant of the Lord, who received it from God. This is God's warning to them. And as fools, they reject it. And their hearts are revealed. There are some who say we just need to educate. Education is our solution. Inform people, 
and then they can make better choices from there. Education is certainly part of the church's existence, absolutely. Education is vital for the strength of our society, yes. But mere education is not the answer. If the heart is not changed, then the heart will still go wrong somewhere. And so, yes, Samuel educates the people. He warns them, but their hearts are steadfast here in a bad way. They've already made their choice, and now you see not just their choice, but their demand. There shall be a king over us, and the reality is yes. Yes, Israel. There will always be something or somebody ruling over you but you're going to the wrong one. One person pointed out, for Israel, like all the nations, is more than an expression. It becomes a passion. They must have this. And that's one way that you can evaluate your own heart. Because let's go back to what we heard from Deuteronomy. If we're just talking in the, in the realm of possibilities, is it possible that now might be the time for Israel to have a king? It's possible because it's allowable per Deuteronomy 17. And it's allowable, even if they want this king, in part, to be like the nations around them. There are many things in life that are permissible to you. Not just permissible, but many things that you can enjoy as gifts from our giving God. As you go to eat lunch this afternoon, there's one simple and yet very important way that God has provided for you. And by all means, enjoy the food. In fact, today's kind of special, right? Because you get to enjoy what others have made. Yes, make that a time of rejoicing. And so as you enter into building B and you start to smell all of those different cuisines, and it brings back memories of when you've had it before. You're looking forward to heaping your plate and enjoying the food. Yes. Eat it with a smile on your face. But cannot that simple and yet glorious thing also turn to an idol? Well, what's one way that you can tell? One way that we see, one indicator here is that the people have become a demanding people. They are telling God's servant, ultimately God, what must be done here. Okay, you say, well, hunger is a reality. I get hungry. I need to eat. Yes, but are there not also moments when it's not just about eating? It's about consuming and consuming and consuming. When your stomach becomes the God, it can never be full enough. And so we have this possibility of eating and yet not being satisfied. 
Something is missing. Something is deeply missing from Israel and they think it's going to be solved by this human king. They're wrong. And maybe your heart is deceiving you and telling you that whatever is missing from your life is going to be solved by this or by that or by this person or that person. Your heart's wrong. There's something deeply missing from the hearts of these people here. Verse 19, also, the terminology here, the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. This language harkens back to a previous person who had been hearing the warning of God or the call of God and refused to hear. Hear, obey, very similar to, uh, ideas in the Old Testament. Actually, same terminology, refused to hear. Who else refused to hear in the Old Testament earlier? It was Pharaoh. He set himself against the one true God. He refused to listen. So you have another, I believe, connection of this passage back to that time period. Verse 17, slavery. Now verse 19, refusing to hear, refusing to obey the voice of Samuel, hearkening back to Pharaoh who had refused Moses had refused the people of God. And a very scary thing happens here at the end of chapter 8. When the people stubbornly refuse to accept God's warning, what does he do? He decides to give them what they want. Augustine said, and when they asked, he gave them a king as it is written according to their heart, but not according to his heart. One of, the, one of the worst times for you could be when you stubbornly set yourself against God's ways repeatedly, and finally at some point, God gives you what you want. This is not good for the nation. Now, over all of this is our sovereign providential God whose plan continues, and even with Israel's terrible choice here, his plan is not thrown off. He is still working good. But these people are not on the path of being able to rejoice in and experience God's goodness. And so if you're in that phase where you have pushed and pushed and pushed to get what you want and you've finally gotten it and for some reason you're saying, well, I I have it, it must be okay in God's eyes. No. Do not use that reasoning. In fact, it could be the judgment of God to give you what your heart has so deeply wanted. Israel was God's special people. They had the covenant. They had the promised blessings from God if they obeyed. God would fight for them. He would fight before them. He would fight alongside them. But they were not content. Contentment just seems like such a small idea. Just this thing that that is over here on the side of our Christian life. And yet it is so central. 
These people were not content with the God whom they could not see, and so they needed a king who would be before them, who visibly would be leading their armies. Visibly, they could follow. And so they call belligerently for a king. The challenge so often for the people of God, it was the challenge for Israel as they could not see God. It's the challenge for us today as we wait for our Lord to return for us as Christ is the head of the church and his spirit is with us even today. And yet we cannot see physically our Lord before us. This is what God calls his people to do, to live by faith and to be content and rejoicing in what he has given. Sometimes God doesn't give his people what they want. Here he gave the Israelites what they wanted. But can you think of a New Testament example of one who deeply wanted God to work and yet didn't receive the request of his heart? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul. Paul was also privileged, and he acknowledges that. He had revelation from God, and in order to keep him from pride, God brought to him a thorn of the flesh. We don't know what that was, but God was working intentionally in a painful way in his servant to keep his servant humble. And Paul requested repeatedly for God to remove that thorn, remove whatever it was that was causing him suffering. So 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but, it, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. There's our word. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's not strong by his own strength. No, God's power is made perfect in weakness. There were some clear differences between Paul and Israel. I know we're going Old Testament to New Testament. We're going group of people to an, indivi an individual. But Paul here is bringing his request to God. He's praying. You don't see that from Israel anywhere in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. What do you see from them? Demands. This is how it will be. They're not looking to ask God they're looking to command God. Big difference. Paul here is laying his burden before his God, and he is through the turmoil of prayer and human suffering coming to the point where he is trusting God and content in God and going forward in his weakness depending on God. The spirit is markedly different. Maybe you demand things from God. 
Maybe you've been demanding. Or maybe you've just left off that conversation with God and you've just started making your own choices, forging your own path, bowing to your own contrived idols. I know you wouldn't use that term. But in the end, it's not the term you use that matters. It's the term that God uses. And anything that replaces God is an idol. And any idol, every idol, will disappoint in the end. It's also possible in this age that you even haven't even consciously replaced in any way. It's possible that you've just been consuming in some area of life, trying to meet the discontentment of your soul. See, consuming is very easy for us in the society. Too easy. And in some way, you're trying to self-medicate through relationship, through food, through outside substance of some kind, through work, through power, whatever it is, you're trying to self-medicate. You're not thinking about replacing God on purpose, but all of a sudden you find that you keep going back to the same thing and you keep giving and giving and you try to take, but there's no satisfaction. Israel's call for a king reveals it has rejected God. What does the call of your heart reveal? What does the practice of your steps show? Where are the worn paths of life and what idols lie at the end of those paths? As you have in some way taken God off of the throne and put something else in his place. I would end in John chapter 6. Maybe you haven't experienced it yet. And you have a very different view of God. But our triune God truly is giving. In fact, he is giving as no other being is giving. Nobody can outgive God. Jesus says in John 6:35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, our giving God sent his Son to give life. There is possibility of contentment and joy and purpose and peace in Christ, as there is not possibility in anything else. Everything else that you go to and demand, you must keep demanding, and it will keep taking. But there is a God who gives life, eternal life. 
What do the calls of your heart reveal? Have you started to demand from God? Instead of listening to your heart, instead of listening to your heart, listen to the God through whose voice there is life. That is your only hope. God, thank you for your truth. It's painful to look into the mirror of 1 Samuel 8. Painful because this is often our practice where we start to expect things from you or we determine that you have failed us and we go elsewhere. This is a danger that's possible for those who've turned to Christ for salvation already. It's also true of those who have never known you as their God. God, may we not listen to the calls of our hearts, the calls of our desires of just feasting and taking and making ourselves the focus. Instead, help us to listen to your word. Listen to the hope that is through Christ, that he offers that which satisfies so much so that he can say whoever comes to him will never hunger and whoever believes in him will never thirst. We admit that as your people, we have trouble practicing that often. So teach us daily to find our joy and our satisfaction in Jesus who never leaves us, he never forsakes us, and he will come one day for us and in him are tremendous joys and blessings. We thank you for such a savior and pray in his name, amen.